This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana College of Business. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot. Hey folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. Bryce and I figured it was high time we added some happiness to our Incentives and Instincts series. The last few have been a little bit dark. So we went after Missoula's authoritative source on happiness. In fact, this guy teaches a class called the Art and Science of Happiness. Dr. John Summers Flanagan is Professor of Counselor Education at University of Montana's Phyllis J. Washington College of Education. In addition to his teaching and research, he is an active clinician and he is the host of the alliterative Practically Perfect Parenting Podcast. Gosh, I'm glad I got that out on the first take. John, thanks for coming on the podcast. All right. Thank you, Justin. And thanks, Bryce. Uh, It's great to be here. So, so much to talk about. I mean, Bryce and I have just generally been inquiring on kind of this contrast in our society between so many things going well and uh, so many things not. Um, Recently been focused on the not. And um, want to just touch base with you about the state of mental health in, in our region in particular. How, how are people doing? What's your sense of it? Well, I guess uh, there's plenty of not going well, um, both mm-hmm. regionally here in Montana as well as throughout the U.S. And so I don't blame you guys for focusing on that. Um, you know, Montana, historically, we are always in the top five in terms of the highest suicide rates in the United States. And uh, most recently, I think we were number two or three, Mm -hmm. but we are almost double the national average. It is way safer in terms of suicide to live in New Jersey than Montana. Nobody knows exactly why. There are a lot of hypotheses. Uh, So suicide is one indicator that we would say if we look at our region, we're not doing very well. Are there any kind of, I mean, you said we don't exactly know why. Do we have any kind of ideas as to why that might be? Well, I'd say the top three are probably number one, isolation. Social isolation Mm -hmm. tends to be linked to higher suicide rates. And obviously in the Rocky Mountain West, there's a lot of social isolation. Number two is, uh, you know, high per capita access to firearms. And of course, using guns is the most efficient way to die by suicide. And so people who make an attempt, if they use a firearm, they're highly likely to die. And so that's another reason. Uh, Other reasons, maybe a little more speculative, uh, probably some pretty high alcohol rates. Alcohol is in a kind of emotional desensitizer that can give people a feeling like, hmm, I can get through the pain or my fear of dying by suicide. And so that might contribute. Some other things particular to Montana, uh, we do have a pretty high population of veterans and veterans in Montana, especially young veterans returning from combat, uh, have super high rates of suicide. And then uh, Native American populations, not so much older Native Americans, but Native American teenagers and young adults have, have very high rates of suicide. So those factors, I think, together are the best hypotheses about why we're always up there in the top five. And do you have any sense for how COVID and the pandemic in general have, have, have either exacerbated or changed some of those dynamics? 
Well, it's interesting. One recent study, and and this is a very recent study, where they tried to take a look at the uh, social distancing and uh, sheltering in place factor. And this is more this is nationally, and so it wasn't just Montana. Uh, but they didn't find that there was any effect on increased suicide rates. Um, on the other hand, I think it's probably pretty common sense that again more social isolation and and more perception of social isolation just people feeling like they can't reach out and uh, get a hug or go out and have some beers with their buddies um, and those perceptions that they are people are more isolated I think over time will undoubtedly contribute to increased rates of depression anxiety and probably suicide um, and so it's super important for us to find well, what are the ways to increase a sense of connection and what are the ways that we help people deal with uh, depression and anxiety uh, from a distance. Uh, and that's a big challenge. There's a survey that the Census Bureau has been doing called the Household Pulse Survey, and they've included measures of of anxiety and depression on that survey. And Relative to a similar survey that was done last year that used the same four questions to assess symptoms of anxiety disorder or symptoms of depressive disorder, about 40% of the population nationally is experiencing at least one symptom of anxiety or depression. Uh, that's like a 400% increase <laughs> relative to 2019. Yeah. Now, Montana, because there is state-level data in that survey, Montana has thus far been slightly below the national average because essentially a lot of – we haven't had – a a statewide significant spike in, you know, like we've seen in New York, New Jersey, Texas, Arizona, Florida. Um, so we've kind of managed to not go through some of the extreme hardship that other mm -hmm. places have gone through. So, you know, it, basically every measure of the pandemic in terms of whether it's the economy or whether it's mental health is slightly lower here. It's not to say that it's still not massively elevated amongst what it would have, what it would have been normally quote unquote, or you know, say last year, um, it's just that it's a couple percentage points below in Montana. So yeah, we've got definite evidence that now a lot of these questions, you know, they're not necessarily picking up clinical depression or, you know, some of these more significant levels. They're just kind of four questions about whether or not you're experiencing, you know, certain symptoms of anxiety or depression. And, you know, and certainly the pandemic itself might induce you to respond that you're anxious or lonely or whatever it is. But it's certainly, yeah, John's right that this is gonna this this will show up eventually. Uh, I don't think it's shown up in actual suicides yet, but suicide ideation in one study was massively up as well, particularly amongst young people. Yeah, I think that's a really that's really an interesting and important survey. And obviously, it's just a survey, and like you said, it's not a diagnostic assessment. But uh, we really know about anxiety and we know about depression, and both of those states are highly influenced by our situations, right? Uh, certainly, there's some biogenetic factors. Some people are more vulnerable than others, but almost always anxiety and depression are situationally driven. And so, yeah, being, <laughs> being at home with COVID. Now, Montana might have a slight advantage in that we're all naturally socially isolated. Uh, we're all we're less of already, a shock yeah less yeah. of a change uh exactly. well and also we've also been able to go outside true you know mm -hmm. and you know a lot more certainly during like march and april uh my conversations with people in other parts of the country and certainly other parts of the globe 
I'm like, yeah, we still go outside and hike, and people are like, we've been trapped inside of our house. We can't even <sighs> like go anywhere. Um, and so, yeah, we've had that advantage as well. And you know, and that's in part because we haven't. We had our little spike in the summer, which was a big spike relative to where it had been previously. But still, in terms of you know the spikes that we've seen in other parts of the country or other parts of the globe, Montana has yet to go through some a huge spike, you know, at least statewide. So, John, one of the narratives that's emerged from COVID or one of sort of the operating theories you hear people talk about is COVID's acting as an accelerant of existing trends, not necessarily an agent of change. Um, to the extent that there are, you know, some of those underlying factors that drive well-being, you know, can we talk about some of those things, whether it's, um, you know, wealth inequality, um, polarization in our society, any of these sort of broader trends that we've been seeing over the years, to the extent that they relate to well-being, um, which which I don't know, you probably have some comment on, you know, perhaps COVID is is accelerating some of those factors or 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 playing a different role. I think an accelerating hypothesis is a really, really robust one. I think it it really can account for some of the things that we see. Uh, and you named, of course, uh, income in, inequality or economic inequality, poverty, uh, a sense of oppression, and all those kinds of more uh, regionally, globally, nationally systemic factors that people don't feel much personal control over. And COVID mm-hmm. is another one, right? I mean, what yep. can we do? <laughs> Not much. Uh, and so when you add those factors together, people start to feel more and more desperate. Like, what can I do to actually help myself feel better or improve my situation? And people feel pretty limited. And are these, I mean, I would assume that these, like you, you sort of painted a, a pretty pretty bleak picture of you know, suicide <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the happiness guy. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there. I promise. Folks. All right. We'll get there. But, you know, are those, you know, we rank consistently... I guess high, not that being high is good, um, on some of those measures, depression, anxiety, suicide, ideation, um, suicides as well. Uh, is that getting worse? Like, are, are we getting worse as, as, a, as a system, as a nation, and then Montana in particular? Yeah, I think we're getting worse as a nation. Uh, and, you know, again, I think part of it has to do with, if you think about what are the factors that contribute to depression and suicide um, or mental health problems in general. And if you look at Montana relative to the nation and mental health problems, if you look at the combination of frequency intensity of mental health problems, plus uh, limited access to care for mental mm-hmm. health treatment, uh, we are always in the in the bottom 10 in terms of we have bad ratios compared to other states. Uh, and I think, so I think that, yeah, there's, there are these system, these systemic factors that we don't have much control over. And I think that they are generally getting worse, you know, and I'd have to say, and this is again, only a hypothesis, but there's some limited scientific evidence that all of the exposure that most of us have to bad news and not just bad news, but bad news over which we have no control contributes to those things that also feed depression and suicide, sense of helplessness, sense of hopelessness, sense of haplessness, like, hey, I, there's nothing. I got, I got nothing here. 
And I'm yeah. just this sort of bobbing um, <laughs> in, in the ocean and I'm just getting buffeted around by the terrible things that are happening in the world. That certainly resonates with me. I mean, I had a colleague come to me with, with you know, something that merited uh, outrage and in my outrage in particular, I, I just was like, I'm sorry, I don't have any outrage left today. Can we have this conversation later? Um, so let's let's flip the switch here, John. We've talked about kind of the state of play, but you know, how, how, what can we do about it? How can we as individuals and as a system think about steps to uh, to be better, to have more well-being, to, to be happier? How would you even start thinking about this challenge? I think the first step is it goes back to the old serenity prayer that uh, Alcoholics Anonymous people, I think it was Nybauer, came up with back in the mid-20th century. And that is, of course, focus on the things that we can control and try to let go of those things over which we cannot control. I think making that distinction or that discernment for each of us individually is important. Uh, the people who write about mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, which is a nice approach and it tends to have good empirical support for preventing uh, depression relapse and sometimes for treating depression, they would say, you know, our brains go in two different modes. One mode is problem solving. And of course, that's when you get outraged, like you felt, Justin, and and there's something you can do about it. And you, you can come up with some problem solving or some plan for what you might do to be effective, an effective change agent, or at least to feel better about it in the here and now. And the other mode of, of brain functioning that they talk about is the mindful acceptance mode. And of course, we don't want to be mindfully accepting over things that we should be problem solving and working on, but we probably need to be mindfully accepting off and on more often than we are, because the more we get stuck in that problem-solving mode, the more we're kind of bouncing our head against the wall, especially if they're factors that we don't have control over. So those are some initial things that come to mind to me about trying to take steps toward uh, a little more happiness. The first thing is to be able to make a discernment between what we can control, what we can't control, and try to let go more often of those things that we can't control and focus more on the things that we can control. You know, Bryce, uh it makes me think about some of the work you've done with your colleagues at the Rural Institute trying to um, create interventions that, that maybe um, enable people to approach that mindset. You know, maybe you can talk a little bit about some of, the, the, some of that work you do there. Yeah, so there's, there's two parts to our, you know, that I think come out of the positive psychology or other parts of psychology. So there's the part that John is talking about, which is, yeah, let's change how you think about your experiences. In particular, let's accept the things that you can't control. Let's change how you experience a barrier or some other impediment that we might think is affecting your well-being. The other thing that we do that I'd be curious to hear what John thinks about is we're also trying to get you to also change what you do. Uh mm -hmm. You know, there's certainly cer some activities are associated with greater happiness, joy, or meaning. And particularly in our research with people with disabilities, we know that people with disabilities spend less time engaged in activities that are both 
generate happiness and generate meaning or just generate meaning even without generating happiness. And so, you know, our goal is to try and also help either change them or change their environment in ways that might allow them to, to do more stuff that is, you know, in, in particular things like relationships, right? We know that, you know, gen- I guess that was lurking in John's discussion of suicide and isolation. We know that when people are engaged in face-to-face interaction with other human beings, it generates big spikes in their perceived perceptions of happiness and meaning. And so we want you to be able to develop relationships, to have relationships, and we want to kind of remove impediments to that kind of stuff. Just a quick reaction, Bryce, and that is I think that your focus on what people are doing is crucial, right? I mean, because, yeah, we can try to change how we think, but uh, our behavior is a big driver of how we think about things. And so I think that you guys are doing some great work if you have people increasing certain kinds of behaviors that are more likely to produce meaningfulness and happiness. Let's maybe talk about some of these some of these procedures. John, I know you wanted to talk about some some of what we know from uh, how you can actually um, improve mood and well-being. And it, we'll get a couple examples from you. And then maybe, Bryce, you can talk about some of the studies you've been involved in. Sounds great. Uh, just one distinction about happiness. And, uh, and this is an important one, I think, uh, for anybody who's listening to it. And it's not really about mood. Um, it's not really about being smiley, right? It's about uh, really what, what Bryce was talking about, living a life that you can then reflect on and feel good about. It's you know what Aristotle referred to as eudaimonic happiness. Uh, and, and so it's, it's living a good life. It's living a life that's consistent with our, our morals and our values that we can feel good about. And so if you think about that holistically, there are so many different dimensions to uh, the way we are as humans. You know, we can do kinds of physical things that will contribute to our well-being. And I know, Justin, you're, you're big into running and other kinds of, of exercise. And of course, the more we can get people to exercise, the better their mental and physical health is likely to be. Uh, and that gets into the issue of incentives. And I want to stay away from that because I know you guys are experts. And so I'm going to, I'm going to avoid that. But, but one really, really quick, uh, mental based, uh, experiential activity that may produce more well-being for some people. It's always an experiment for the individual, right? I can tell you guys try this, but if it doesn't work for you, I would just move on to something else. Um, but, you know, uh, Martin Seligman wrote about a thing called three good things. It's very simple. End of the day. Um, instead of reviewing all the things that went wrong, you simply write down three things that are good or an alternative word is three blessings. So those three good things are those three blessings you write down. And then you spend a little bit of time reflecting on why did those good things happen? And that's the cognitive or the mental piece. It gets us out of ruminating on, oh, I just, uh, I did this terrible, I said this thing on on the podcast and I'm embarrassed and I'm laying in bed and I'm thinking about all the things I said that were wrong. Well, Seligman says, turn the switch, focus on three good things, explain why they happened. And if you do that every night, you likely will feel better. And what's the, I mean, what's the mechanism there? What is it about it? What is it about elaborating 
on the reasons why good things happen that can contribute to, 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 to well-being? You know, I think it's both, uh, it turns off the negative interpretations, sure. right? Uh, and so we're not ruminating on those bad things that happened and we're not personalizing and saying, and, and the bad things happened because I was so stupid, right? And so it turns off the negative and then it just starts the brain a little bit, it gives the brain a little bit of practice at saying, hey, wait a minute, there's some good things happening and here's how. I'm bringing those good things into my life. Uh, and so you become a little more of an active agent in your life, or at least you start thinking that way a little bit more. And that's a good start. So we, we talked about the trend earlier, right? So we said, okay, this is getting worse in terms of all of our description, depression, anxiety, suicide, suicide ideation, et cetera. And you've just outlined some things that we think can help us do better why are we getting, in some sense, why are we getting worse at these things? Or are they the trends independent of each other? Is something just, we were the same level at this stuff, but other things are changing and we're, we're now, we need this stuff more. I'm just trying to understand the dynamics in terms of what you understand for why we're ending up in the bad spot that we are descriptively, given the explanations that we've offered in terms of how do we do better or why are we getting worse? Yeah. And I think you actually put your finger on it earlier when you said something about changing behavior and changing habits. I think right now we are a pretty uh, habit driven society and that those habits continually get worse, even though most humans that I meet understand that if they engage in physical exercise, they will feel healthier or if they have more meaningful social connections, they'll have more of a positive emotional state. Or, you know, if they engage in some kind of spiritually meaningful activity for them, that they'll feel better. Uh, and or if they think positive thoughts, they'll feel better. I mean, everybody knows those things. And yet we're all kind of stuck. And I think our current culture contributes to this. And People are stuck in these habitual ways of responding to the environment as opposed to being more proactive, making a plan, enacting the plan, and then doing it over and over again and developing habits and routines that are positive and health promoting. And how do you feel about this? I mean, you, you sort of hinted to it a moment ago, um, I'm talking about media environment and, and social media in particular. I mean, we can have the self-talk and try to develop these new habits, but we're kind of competing more and more against these algorithms that are just engineered to consume our <laughs> attention and direct it uh, probably down, you know, negative rabbit holes. Uh, what do we, what do we know about social media right now and, and how it's affecting all of this? Uh, you know, social media can be terribly fun, you know, whether it's TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or Reddit. You know, the young people I talk to, I mean, depending on their age group, they're spending more time than even they say they want to in, mm -hmm. the, in those social media platforms. And, you know, there's a, there's a fair amount of research that suggests that the more social media use the higher the level of depression. 
you know, some of it's a little bit causal, some of it's correlational, right? But it also is good common sense and that people need to break away. They need to get outside. And like you guys had said about COVID in Montana, we can go outside. In fact, our governor said, go outside. Mm -hmm. We live in Montana. And so it makes sense to do that. And people feel better. And especially if they're not staring at their phone when they're outside. A New Angle is brought to you by First Security Bank and Blackfoot, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. This is Sam Schultz, and you're listening to A New Angle. But, but you know, so here we are on a podcast talking about this, and uh, I think most people who would hear us would agree, and they're like, oh, yeah, sure, yeah. And yet, there's, uh, you guys tell me, you know more about economics, how much more money is spent in the marketing than the development and the promotion of TikTok and Instagram? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's asymmetric warfare. <laughs> it's not right? fair. It's not fair. Uh, yeah. I mean, the tables have turned. And, you know, I think that that, that is actually you know, a premise that, that Bryce and I haven't yet investigated on this series is... Yeah, kind of this ad model that mm. um, has has sort of driven a lot of how we've kind of built the internet at this point it has huge problems, huge problems uh, of perverse incentives and creating all kinds of problematic behaviors um, for actors on all sides. I think if we were to know what we knew now, we would design, I'd like to think we would design the internet differently. Bryce, that's not something we've, we've touched on yet, but what's your thoughts on, on, on the ad model, social media in general and contributing to happiness and well-being? Well, I, yeah. I mean, obviously it's hard to study this. It's so ubiquitous. There's lots of things going on. What are we even talking about with social media? Yada, yada, yada. Hopefully we'll learn more as we go forward, but it's very cert it's certainly hard to ignore the massive spike in depression, anxiety, and suicide ideation amongst adolescents that started 10 years ago. And well, what happened 10 years ago? <laughs> oh, everybody got phones and, and, and uh, you know, had, were basically supercomputers in their pocket. And what did we put on those phones? We put Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and now we have TikTok. You know, it's, it's ubiquitous. So it's, it's certainly hard to look at these spikes and, I mean, real significant changes in terms of our collective mental health and not go, well, what changed and think, look to that. Now, that doesn't mean that we've proven it, mm -hmm. but we do have some studies that certainly are suggestive. So in 2018, some people, including a friend of mine named Matt Jenskow, they paid people to disable their Facebook accounts randomly. And then they were able to see, well, what happens when we, essentially get people to go off Facebook and they did a bunch of stuff. And well, what happened? Well, if you don't have Facebook, you start spending more time engaged in face-to-face -face interaction with humans. You say you feel better about your life. And yet when they, the experiment's over and they say, well, you can go get your Facebook account back. They actually ask people, you know, questions about willingness to pay or willingness to accept. And essentially people were willing to pay a lot of money to give them the other data they provided us make themselves work up, worse off, which basically kind of suggests that, you know, people are kind of addicted. 
You know, these are mm-hmm. kind of the properties of addicted goods. And so, yeah, if I'm going back in time, uh, knowing just literally knowing what we know now, not knowing what we're going to know in the future, hopefully we'll know more in the future. Yeah, I would certainly think that we would want to redo the internet and social media so that it is not triggering as many of these things that John talked about at the beginning in terms of exposing us to a constant outrage cycle of things that we can't control. Uh, If it's not doing that, uh, maybe it's making you feel bad because of relative comparison of your life to the cultivated life that you're seeing uh, because you don't have the ability to be like, this isn't reality, right? This is a cultivated perception of reality. And, And we can go down the list of things that have been hypothesized for why this is dangerous, but there's a lot of good that comes from these types of connections and whatnot. And, you know, I, I was teaching a class on social networks when Facebook was founded at the school that I was at. So we spent a lot of time and I had, you know, optimistic hopes for it, but in terms of, yeah, it allows you to keep in touch with people and those keeping in touch with people makes it easier to now reach out and maintain actual real life relationships and yada, yada, yada. But I'm increasingly like, okay, well, that was a nice dream. The reality of it is as exists now, it seems to be not, it's not something that, I mean, look, I'm, I, I, I go on Twitter and tweet out things very, uh, that I produce uh, and I have a cultivated feed of largely academics because it allows me to keep up on research, but I try and avoid the rest of social media personally. Yeah, that that seems pretty wise. And, and you know, we're thinking of re reengineering this this business model or even sort of setting aside all the data privacy issues that kind of underlie all of it and drive a lot of the, the ability of these businesses to do what they do. Um, John, I wanted to pivot the conversation to your class, the art and science of happiness. You know, one thing that caught my eye, um, I think it was last spring in the midst of your class, you know, um, you had a blog post talking about how you and your class has been criticized as you know, why on earth is it, or the, the fact that this class is taught and being offered by University of Montana is a sign of the problem. Um, and you develop, you have a pretty convincing counter case to that. Yeah. Just, just, uh, just give the, def- well, actually tell us about your class and, and tell us why it's important. Yeah. Well, we, we decided to do the class. Rita and I decided to, to kind of uh, formulate the class and implement it at the University of Montana just because, you know, if you look at the data on campus, the health and mental health data are not good. And mm-hmm. these kinds of classes also have been helpful for students around the U.S., obviously Yale and Berkeley and many other schools have had their happiness classes. So we thought, well, let's, let's isn't do it. Isn't it the, the most popular class at Yale University, isn't it? It is. It's also the most yeah. popular. It was the most popular at Harvard, right? Um, and so it, you know, we thought, well, let's do it at the University of Montana because you could go online and take it in some kind of distant format, but we wanted to do it face-to-face and we wanted to do it with some of our students. We thought it might help with retention. We thought it might mm-hmm. help with mental health. But then, of course, there is also a body of research that it is based on. In in 1998, Martin Seligman became president of the American Psychological Association. And before that, most of the emphasis in psychology was on what's wrong with you. So Bryce came to see me in counseling. I'd be thinking, what's wrong with you? I need to do an assessment and figure out what's wrong. And 
really Seligman, who was much more of a cognitive and social psychologist, flipped that around and said, let's look at what's right with people and what's right with their behavior. And let's develop this thing called positive psychology. And so he was really the the person in psychology who shifted the conversation. And since then, there are a couple of uh, scientific journals. They publish a lot of research on this. Uh, and so it is an academic uh, pursuit, as well as something that could help with University of Montana retention and could help with our student mental health. And so uh, those are the three reasons why we really thought, hey, this is a, something we should offer. Uh, and then we put it together and we decided, oh, we're not going to just do it exactly like Yale or Harvard or anybody else. Let's do it like we want to do it at the University of Montana. Uh, and then we, uh, I have a student who's doing his dissertation on the effects of the class, um, and he got a control group. And so he's actually in the process of data analysis now, so we don't really know anything yet. But my sense from the, uh, the reports from the students was they found the class to be meaningful. They found it to be influential in their lives. And uh, I was pretty excited about it. We had 54 students. And I felt like I, in some ways I was running kind of a, a therapy group for 54 students. Uh, and then we had to shift after spring break to being online, which was kind of cool that we have some data also that is related to COVID and uh, mm-hmm. to, to sheltering in place. And so uh, we'll see what the, what the data say soon. Uh, but for now, I feel pretty good about what we offered and the response was, was positive. And so talk about the framing of the course. I mean, you're, you're a professor of counselor education. Is this a course oriented towards counselors or is this, uh, this is more of an undergraduate, how can I be happy kind of class? Uh, it was more of an undergraduate class. Uh, and what we did was we took a very much a science-based experimental approach where we focused on teaching the students. Uh, I think I had 16 different assignments. And so I wanted them to experience the evidence-based happiness interventions that are out there. And then I wanted them to reflect on their experience and to determine uh, whether the intervention worked for them. Uh, And so there was a lot of uh, kind of personal data collection and experiential part of the course. But I also um, managed to, you know, push in information from everything from uh, eudaimonia and Aristotle to, you know, the, the stats on some of the research. And, um, and, and yeah, so we, we made it very academic, but we also made it very experiential. It was geared toward uh, undergraduates. There were probably 10 graduate students who were also taking the course, even though they couldn't count it for graduate credit. And so when you say, you know, that these students would do the interventions on themselves, like the intervention, like you spoke about earlier, you know, writing three reasons why you thought this good thing happened, those mm-hmm. sorts of things, I would assume. Um, what, um, I mean, what, what, what were kind of the, set the table for us a little bit. Like what were, what were the students expecting showing up? Like, did you have a sense for why students enrolled and, and, and what they were looking for in the course? And then maybe kind of talk about your experience of, of either matching that or mismatching that. Uh, we tried to do a fair amount of promotion because getting a new 100 level course, um, yeah. you know, people to enroll in it was tough. Uh, and so I, my sense was people, we had some people who talked about being depressed 
they talked about it in some of their self-disclosures in class, but also in their writing. Uh, we had some students who uh, had all kinds of different social problems and family problems. And so there were a fair amount of people who were kind of coming, I think, out of a problem-based need. But then there were at least an equal number who were just curious, you know, what what is this thing? Uh, this is a happiness class. What are, what are we going to learn? And they didn't know what they were going to learn. And they, I thought, I think were excited to learn something about it. And, and you know, and and I used the evidence-based stuff out there, but I also made up some things. And so here's an example. And, you know, class started, there was Martin Luther King weekend. And so one of their early assignments was witness something inspiring. Hmm. And I told them over the Martin Luther King weekend to, to not go online and find something inspiring, but just walk around and be over the weekend looking for something inspiring. And I had such an amazing range of reports. Some of them, of course, broke the rule and found something online that inspired them, <laughs> which is like, <laughs> did you read the assignment? But, <laughs> but most of them, you know, talked about, oh, I just, I mean, I just saw somebody wait, hold a door for somebody. I saw how that seemed to affect the person. I saw my my sister do something kind for my parents. I saw and and some of them again just walking around others very much in a social context where they were in relationship and they saw somebody who in a new way do something that they thought was inspiring. So I, I so John I love the 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 fact that your assignments were it's basically one of the lessons that I I've taken from my limited exposure to positive psychology is that a key part of it, we kind of have this basic set of things, which is relationships, exercise, and, you know, kind of the mindfulness acceptance piece that we've all talked about. But mm -hmm. in terms of getting to that operationalized, a big part of it's you, you just got to experiment and try and see what works. Do you, you know, so you did 16 different things, right? Um, what was, what was the, do you have a sense of what was the most popular or what people found the most surprising? You know, uh, a couple of things come right to mind. Uh, one of the first things I had them do was to identify songs that were their good mood songs. And then we played them uh, to open class every, every, every class. And we had class twice a week. Um, and, you know, they, many people in the final evaluation of the course said, I I loved listening to the songs at the beginning of class. It just put me in the right mindset for class. And so people were really impacted by that. Uh, but the other one that, that grabbed people and, you know, I, and again, I, I'm, I, I'm reluctant to say something in particular was the best because people had different experiences, but, you know, gratitude and, you know, the, the research on this is pretty robust too people doing various gratitude assignments. Uh, oh, man, they, they loved it. They also loved um, the thing called savoring, which is to extend your emotional experience of positivity a little longer and make it a little more intense. And a lot of people used savoring in a particular way, which is called mutual savoring. And what they did was they 
talked with a friend or a family member about something that they had done together before that they really, really enjoyed. And then what was interesting, and this was consistent with the research on mutual savoring, is it it not only lifted their mood, but it made them start to plan to replicate the positive experiences. And so there was this sort of behavioral momentum that came out of this mutual savoring. And that was super cool. I love that. I love that notion of mutual. I mean, we do it all the time with, you know, a, whatever, a book that you make of a trip or something or, a, a, you know, where you shared that experience. I love that. So let me flip the question around. Was there stuff that didn't work or was less impactful? Well, you know, I, I was surprised um, by the fact that I think I would say 75% of the students had a positive response to everything they tried. Uh, now, some of them had more positive and less positive. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one that surprised me the most was I had them read an article on habit, habit formation. I had them listen to a, a podcast, um, you know, on, on habit. And then I had people write to me about ways that they had changed behavior and reestablished a new routine and made it a habit. And I hadn't thought that the habit stuff would be very engaging because, you know, it's very behavioral. It's very habit. (laughs) But but students responded and I got some of the best stories about things that they had changed and had maintained over the course of the semester. So that was, that was pretty cool. So what didn't work? You know, I had a couple of students, I had one student in particular, just one really who, you know, I, I, I continually asked them, what are you liking about the course? What, what's working for you? Because that was part of the habit that I wanted to instill in them was to keep reflecting on what's working, reflect on what's working. And I would have them do this all the time. But one guy toward the end said, uh, I don't like this class. And you know, in one of his uh, written reports, uh, I don't like this class. And so it just feels like it's just all one group therapy thing. Uh, and it's like, okay, <laughs> you know, uh, nothing works for everyone. And he just didn't like the class at all and didn't respond. Although here's the interesting thing. Here's another component we had. I had everybody in class either get eight sessions of of consultation, happiness consultation from a master's level student in counseling or write a paper, right? A couple people wrote papers, uh, but almost everybody got the eight sessions. And the guy who hated the class did his eight sessions and loved it. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah, there you go. The one-on-one for him was working. Being in a group and practicing these touchy-feely things was not his thing. Well, you found a way with that student. Um, so the, the typical straw man argument you will get is, why, why are we teaching a class like this? We need to be you know, helping students get jobs. Um, make the case that this, this is maybe a, a way so they can be better in those jobs and get better jobs <laughs> and, and understand what a good job is. That's uh, not a leading question at all, Justin. <laughs> no, no. I know, but you know, you know where I stand on this issue, obviously. <laughs> well, you know, it's... Aside from the fact that we should study history, and this begins with Aristotle, right? Aside from the fact that we should study science, and this is science. um, Aside from the fact that we should study philosophy, 
I mean, those things are things you do in academia and you should do. In addition, as you guys know, in the business world in particular, you know, they call them soft skills. It's sort of a pejorative term, but people who, you know, <laughs> the, the, the research on happy people are more productive people. Happy people are more helpful people. Happy people are better people. <laughs> you know, we're, we're better at work. We are better at home. We are better in our communities. Why not teach people how to uh, control just a little bit better their state of mind and their emotional state? Why not give them a little more empowerment in that domain? They will do better at work. They'll do better at home. They'll do better in the community. Uh, just It's just true. How much better? It's not magic. It's not going to make everybody, oh, now I've had a happiness class. I'll be a better employee. Well, if you work on it and you have a happiness class, both those things, I think the odds are pretty good. That's a pretty winning sales pitch for, for me, John, and probably an appropriate moment to bring the conversation to a close. I can't thank you enough for, for joining us today. And uh, I, feel, I feel happier um, just having heard, you know, your voice. Um, but how can people find you online, John? How can they learn more about your work and, 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 and so forth? Well, the main place, of course, is johnsummersflanagan.com. It's a little blog that I have uh, where I post um, mostly stuff related to counseling and psychotherapy and happiness. Uh, you know, occasionally I'll probably post something inappropriate, but uh, I think your listeners would, it might attract them more if I said I'm posting things that are inappropriate. Uh, so yes, Maybe. that's the place to go. <laughs> um, the Practically Perfect Parenting Podcast. I do that with Sarah Polinchek, who also has a doctorate in counseling. And uh, she and I talk about how to be better parents, uh, but recognizing that no one is a perfect parent, and we ought to throw that idea out the window. Um, those are probably the two uh, common places to find me. You know, I've written a few books, and if you go onto Amazon, you can find those sorts of things. Uh, but, you know, I want to say... I love listening to you guys and I am very much grateful. I'm doing, I'm going to do the gratitude thing here. I'm really grateful that you guys are doing this podcast and helping people to be more aware of how they can contribute to a better community and society. And I feel like you guys do a great job of that. Bryce, any uh, parting shots from you? Yeah, I'm going to give you one tip, John. Don't refer to these as soft skills. It, that that This whole notion that there's some sort of thing that we call soft skills, they're deep skills. Mm, and uh, they're deep skills that they really are productive and valuable. And we, you, know, you have to work on these things. You're absolutely right that just taking one class doesn't solve the issue. But taking a class makes you aware that this, there is a path towards uh, greater happiness, greater meaning. Uh, and by doing that, yeah, you're going to hopefully be more resilient and resilience is the key to productivity and, you know, in, at work, but also at home. I know this you is going to be a, a shock. It's going to be a shock, Bryce, but I totally agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I have a colleague, uh, Dr. Teresa Floyd, studies organizational management, teaches a lot, or organizational behavior, teaches a lot of this stuff too. And she calls them essential skills, which I think is a, is a pretty good term. Either way, well. yeah, that works as well. Yeah. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do next. I am going to go and reflect on three reasons why this podcast conversation went so well. I know that two of those three are the fact that Bryce and John were part of it. I can't really figure out the third, but I'll think about it for a while. And uh, yeah, thanks to you both, John. uh, I hope our paths cross again soon. And Bryce, of course, on to next month. Be well, everybody. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. A New Angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot with support from the University of Montana College of Business and Consolidated Electrical Distributors. AJ Williams is our producer. Jeff Ament, John Wicks, and VTO made our music. And Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. If you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. If you like what you heard, tell your friends about us. Thanks a lot and see you next time.